Well, first of all, let me just mention that it is a pleasure to be here. I'm really honored by the opportunity to come and share the Word of God with you this morning. It's been very encouraging since last week to be here and just be able to see all of you and be encouraged. And my prayer has been that this morning I'll be able to bring some encouragement to you as well from the Word of God. So our text for this morning comes from Luke chapter 16. If you have a Bible with you, I would ask you to turn to Luke chapter 16. And hopefully in the next 40 minutes or so, I would like to get through the, the, the whole passage, go through the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. So Luke 16, I started reading on verse 19 to the end of that section. There was a certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being torments in Hades, he lift up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That's the passage. Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this parable, a strong parable dealing with matters of eternity. And we pray that... As the truth of your words come to our minds and to our hearts this morning, we pray that we would learn how to fear you and how to live a life that brings glory to you uh, today, tomorrow, and to the rest of our lives. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let me start with a question. This is a very well-known parable for most of you, I believe. If you grew up coming to church, you have probably read this several times and was taught about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. So... If you could summarize, what is the main point of the parable? What is the parable dealing with? Where is the main theme here? Anyone? Or I'll skip to the next slide and maybe that will help you a little bit. 
So one of the things I, I, I think a lot of people think, that when they think of the parable, they're thinking of Lazarus, because he's the good guy, and we're used to look at the good guy as the main character in, in the Western world. But what we see here is actually the opposite. The main character here in this parable is not Lazarus, but it's actually the rich man. The whole parable is talking about hell, the emphasis is in hell, not in heaven. Notice that there's not a lot of description of what's going on in heaven, but most of it is about the torment that the rich man is receiving in hell. That's the main point. And the rich man is also the main character. We know that because even the dialogues, when you go through the whole parable, Lazarus doesn't say a single word the whole time. The, the second half of the whole, uh, all the verses we read, they're all dealing with a conversation between the rich man and Abraham. And I think that that's what Jesus is trying to get across here is the idea of hell. The context of the parable, which is very important when you study any part of Scripture, is we find that I think it, there's a good summary in verse 14. So if you turn your Bible back and look at verse 14, chapter 16, it says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. So the Pharisees were lovers of money. And as we go through the parable, I, I think it become more and more clear that this is what Jesus is trying to say. He's coming to these people who had this very close association between blessings, physical blessings. If someone was rich, if someone had good things in life, if he, if he was wealthy and healthy, he was blessed. He was one who God was in his favor. But then if you saw someone who was poor and afflicted, and someone like Lazarus, that person is definitely going to hell. That person doesn't have God's favor at all. And there are other places in Scripture where you can see that. Uh, a good example is when Jesus mentions it's harder for a rich man to, to go to heaven than than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And what is the reaction of the disciples there? They say, Lord, who, who can be saved then? So you can see that presupposition they had, that understanding that if God loves you, he will bless you with physical things. You will be blessed in this life. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here, is that this is just a wrong assumption. You shouldn't assume that just because someone has physical blessing, looks like a blessed person in this life, he's going to heaven. And we'll see that actually he's saying, consider death, because this life, if you just think of the blessing of this life, that's nothing compared to eternity. And we see that there is a flip here. Things switch a little bit. And in the beginning, the rich man and the man who is receiving all the favors and receiving the good things, he's the one who's actually in torment and suffering. And the man who was in a bad place, he has faith, and he's the one who enjoys eternity in heaven. So hopefully uh, that will become very clear as we go through the parable. So let's start with just a look at the characters. That's a very good way to start studying any parable, look at the different characters. So the rich man, what does the text tell us about the rich man? Does it say anything about his character or anything about just who he is? Verse 19 starts saying that he was rich, so that's something. He's rich, he was clothed in purple, which in the Bible is always a sign of really being really rich. Not just well-off, but really well-off. Uh, let's see here. Well-clothed, he was respected. He was in a table eating with other men, and we assume that those men were also important men. He was full, he was lavish, and I'm using all these words to show how that's exactly the picture Jesus is trying to paint here. A man who has everything going for him. Everything, you look to that man, and he is blessed. That, you know, at least in, in, in what we can see. He's in good company, he is happy, he is satisfied, but also... He 
we notice because Lazarus is right there on the, by the gate, and he's thrown there, and he doesn't do anything about it. He has all of that, but he doesn't seem to really have any sympathy or empathy for that man. So what does that tell us about the character of this man? That though he was rich and he had all these blessings, he was not a merciful person, and he showed no compassion for Lazarus. And I really like this quote from Samuel Johnson where he says, The true measure of a man is how he treats someone who can do him absolutely no good. One of the things that the Bible shows about love is that even when you look at non-Christians, they, they love their kids and, and sometimes they love, they love people around and they do, they do nice things. What is the difference? The difference between the Christian love and, and that love is that we truly love because... Christ loved us first, and that love is real because we're not expecting anything back. And there is a certain level of selfishness where we can do something for someone, and we could even maybe have the rich man here, I think if he was in the 21st century, where we have different expectations about people. Back in the day, if he was helping someone who was in that bad of a place as Lazarus, he could have been seen as one who was helping someone who was a sinner. And that's why maybe he wasn't helping. But today, I bet the same guy would probably go and, you know, show that he was helping the poor. And he's a good man. And, you know, he helps with charity and all those things. And all of that because he wants to be seen by others. So that's why I like this quote. There is something about doing what is good, but without expecting anything back. And that's between us and God. We're not doing just to show off. And that's true love, true godliness. um, And the way we should express it. But what about the poor man? The poor man says that he is laid at the gate, and the word there is really thrown at the gate. It's, it's a, he, he probably couldn't get there on his own. If you even think about his situation, the way things are happening to him, and, and all the sores and how he's there and he's bagging, he, we expect that back in the day, he probably had some sort of issue that he couldn't really work, and he had to be a bagger, like the blind and the, para, the paraplegic. Paraplegic? <laughs> You guys got to help me with the English. The, 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 if you're new to the church, you don't know me. It may be something new to you, but the old ones know my struggle here, so you can help me. So Lazarus, uh, we know that he was outside. He was laid at the gate. So it's this whole picture of one who, from the eyes of man, was not receiving any favor from God. He was in need. He was begging. He wasn't satisfied. He was asking and, 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 and expecting that some crumbs of bread would fall and he could eat it. It's interesting that his name Lazarus, Lazarus is just uh, a, a variation, a different form of the name Eleazar or Eliezer that we see in the Old Testament, and it means the one who God helps, which is really interesting how Jesus is talking to these people who have all these assumptions, all these expectations that that man is the one who has no favor of God, and he names him the one who is helped by God. He is covered with sores. He's hungry. And he says that the dogs are licking his sores. And here is one of those challenges for us in the 21st century. Because what is a dog to us today? You think, you know, it's, it's the man's best friend. That's who dog is or to us today. This is what you picture when you think of a dog. <laughs> you know, a little cute puppy who is always smiling and, and everyone loves him. And so, but what's happening that is, it's not Lazarus in the corner with a lot of puppies, you know, and very cute. No, what, in, back in the day, in Jerusalem, dogs were the worst scavengers. 
that they had. They would be outside the gate, inside in the streets as well, but most of them would be outside the gates of Jerusalem, and they would be closer to this area called Gehenna. We'll talk more about that a little bit pretty soon. Gehenna was the name that was actually used for, to express hell later on, but that name was actually used just for the area outside the dump of Jerusalem, where you throw dead bodies and, and all the garbage and all that, and the dogs would go and eat those things. And I like how, I believe it's R.C. Sproul, that mentions how in this passage, it's interesting how the dogs that the Jews hate, they hated pigs and they hate dogs. Those are the two animals that Jews hated. And the dogs here, they're coming to this man and they're giving Lazarus the treatment that they would do to themselves. If a dog is hurt, what does he do? He, the dog licks the sore, it's sore. And they're doing to this man the treatment that they would do themselves. They're being nicer to this man. The dogs that everyone despised are doing better to this man than the rich man who has everything. And that's to show the contrast here of what's going on. So we have this picture of the rich man, the poor man, and something happens. What happens that changes everything? Death. Death comes and changes everything. I'll have to explain. I thought that the picture would be a little better, but after the whole, I quit all my social media, but the only thing I have now is Twitter, and I follow, so I don't know if you're familiar with Twitter, but they, on Twitter you can write a little something and you post every day, and I follow this group. It's called Daily Death Reminders. So every day they post, you will die someday, and I make sure that I'm like every day, you know, just reminding that you're going to die someday. <laughs> I recommend. I, I'm not being sponsored or anything, but I recommend that. It's a good reminder. And I'm saying this because that's one of the things Jesus is teaching us here. Understand that we will die really helps us live our life now. Really thinking about death and thinking about the afterlife. It, it's not in vain that Jesus spoke more about hell than about heaven Actually, Jesus spoke more about hell than all the other authors of the Bible, all the other characters in the Bible, people combined. And it is an important topic. Jesus is always trying to remind us of, of, of that, and, and that is, of course, that we would fear the Lord. It's interesting that when the Bible talks about heaven, uh, Paul mentions that uh, in 2 Corinthians 12. He says that he met this man who went to the third heaven. The Greeks had the first heaven. The first heaven was the sky and the clouds, what you can see. The second heaven was the expanse, the stars, the moon, and the planets. And then the third heaven, the spiritual realm. That's how they understood the idea of heaven. So they had three heavens. And Paul says in uh, in 2 Corinthians 12 that he knew this man who went to the third heaven. He came back, and and Paul is like, okay, what did it look like? And he says, he heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. Pretty much, that, that's the best we get out of heaven. It's just too good, I can't express in words, so let's move on. That, that's what the Bible tells about heaven. Uh, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, What eyes have, un- have not seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. It seems like in the Bible there's not a, little, a, lot, of, a lot of concern from Jesus and from all the other altars to, inc- to, to describe heaven too much. It's just good. 
Christ will be there. And we have some descriptions, of course, with a lot of figures of speech in Revelation. And, and those are good. They, they help us. We should have hope of being in heaven. But most of the time, with the descriptions we have are talking about hell and the torment and, and how we should love God and, and fear the wrath of God in that sense. So we have here uh, a switch in the story. That's, that's kind of the, the moment where everything changes. And again, I just want to remind you of what Jesus is doing here. He's talking to the Pharisees who are lovers of money. And we know the whole story because we already read it. But to the Pharisees, this is the first time they're hearing this story. And as they're listening to this, they're just expecting, okay, we have this rich man, the one who is completely blessed, the one who has all the friends and he is rich and, and all of that. And then you have this poor man, probably a sinner. Remember in John 9 when there's a blind man and people come to Jesus and, and ask him, who, who sent, this man or his parents, that he would be blind? That's how he would see people. So imagine a guy like Lazarus, who is not, not just blind, he's way worse than a blind man. So this man has definitely sinned a lot. He doesn't deserve any favor from God. So the funerals here, they would expect is that this poor man probably died on the street, and someone, the garbage man of Israel, I don't know how he worked back in the day, they definitely didn't have trucks, I can tell you that. But they probably took the body and threw him outside in Gahina, in that area where all the garbage goes. That's what happened to Lazarus. And the rich man probably received a very good funeral. People went and they cried for him and, and all that. But what does the text say? That the angels came and took Lazarus to heaven. And the rich man finds himself... In Hades, the 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 rich man here is a very similar man in that sense to the man we read about in the different in a different parable in Luke twelve. The rich man who gathered all things for himself in the barn and and he thinks he'll be okay just saving all that money. And God says, "Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, who will they be?" And, of course, the, the similar thing between these, these two rich men is where they put their trust. The reason this first man b- b- believed, the, the one from the parable we're studying today, this rich man believed that he was going to heaven. He was sure. What was his, the, the source of his assurance was his riches. Because I'm rich, I'm blessed, and I'm going to heaven. I'll be with Father Abraham once I die. And this other rich man, he thought that somehow having all that wealth would also save him. And Jesus is, again teaching us that that's not really how it works. So we see this huge contrast between Lazarus and the rich man. And the, the first time I taught this lesson in, at Providence, I was reading from the ESV. This has torment. And I like the way our Bibles have you here with the plural, torments. It's really all different kinds of torments that we see being described here about hell. In 1 Peter 1, Peter tells about this imperishable, undefiled, and unfading um, inheritance that is kept to us in heaven. And that's the hope we have. And at the same time, we have, I really like this phrase from R.C. Spruce, it's really strong words that he used here. He says, a sinner in hell would give anything he had and do everything he could to make the number of his sins in this life one last just to get one ounce less of torment. And I, I think that 
I believe this is what Jesus wants from us in this parable, is that we would, in a way, empathize, in a way, try to feel what would be to be in hell. And there's a healthy aspect to it in the sense that we need to, first of all, make sure that are we trusting the blood of Christ? Are we, do we know why we're going to heaven? And are we, are we truly going there? And then do we have any empathy for the people who are going there? It's, it's a terrible picture we have here. And I hope that you feel something about the way Jesus is describing all of this. So, once they get to heaven, we see this huge contrast. The rich man, now he's far off from Abraham, which, by the way, I don't want to spend a lot of time with that, but there has been a lot of discussion in the past with this idea of Abraham's bosom. You probably heard that before. And some people say, oh, that's a different place than heaven, where the saints would go for a certain time, and then they go to heaven, and this and that. And I don't want to get into the whole how this thing has been seen in history. But in the parable, just looking at the parable, I don't think we should make a big deal out of it. Because the, what Jesus is doing here, he's not trying to teach any new doctrine about heaven. Remember, the main point here is just to describe hell and what's going on with the rich man. So, when he says he's close to Abraham, it's not to necessarily say that there's a different place where we can go or not and try to teach this new doctrine. But he's just making a contrast between the Jews who loved Abraham, and remember, Abraham was their hero. If anyone, if the Jews knew that one person would be in heaven, would be Abraham. That's for sure. Abraham was the friend of God. He was the father of faith. And here, Abraham is far from this rich man, from this Jewish man who seemed to be blessed his whole life. But Lazarus, he's right by Abraham's bosom. That's the idea of intimacy. It's the same expression that we read about at the, in the upper room when John, I don't know if you're familiar with that passage, he reclines at Jesus' bosom uh, around the table. That's the same idea here. It's the idea of intimacy, of being close. And, and that's what Jesus is trying to show, that the Lazarus, he's with God. He's right there with Abraham. He's receiving all the inheritance that the Jews expect them to have, the blessing of being with Father Abraham, where the other man, it says that he's far off. He cannot have fellowship with Abraham. So I think that that clarifies a little bit of why he used that expression. Abraham's bosom is just this idea of being close to Abraham. He's in suffering, he's in need. So we can see how things are switching here. Where one man who is outside, now he's inside. The one who is inside now finds himself outside of blessings, of place of comfort and joy. Any, any questions or comments so far? All right. So, and what happens then? And then we, we start having the dialogue. Lazarus, the rich man, asks two questions to Abraham. He becomes a beggar, the one who before had everything and would not share anything with Lazarus. Now he's the one asking Abraham, please, please. And he first of all asked for mercy and asked for that Lazarus would dip his finger in water, that's verse 24, and cool his tongue. That's, that's the first thing you see there. That's how needy he is. And, and it says that he's tormented in his flame. And it's one of those things that, let's say that that could happen. How much would that help anyway? Being in a place of torment with all the fire and everything and then a little, but, but that's how much he, he wants a little bit of favor at that point. He asks him to bring some water. 
And notice that there is no repentance. I think that that's very important. Hell is not a place where God corrects his children. There are several ways in which we face suffering in this life and in the life to come. And the Bible describes that, some, that we who are saved in Christ, God sometimes brings things to our lives and let us go through certain trials so that our faith can be strengthened. And, and that's like a father loving his son who has to discipline that son. And in that sense, it's good for you. There is always suffering that comes from our own sins. So, so that's from our sins. If you are living a life of sin and you're not repenting, God loves you and he wants better for you. So he will bring trials to your life so that you can improve. There are also trials that, like Jesus, Jesus was a sinless man, and yet he had to go through a lot. And why is that? So that the Father would receive the glory, and he was doing all of that looking for the joy that was set before him. And in that sense, we also endure and take our own cross with Christ. But here in hell, none of those two are taking place. What we see in hell is truly the wrath of God coming upon someone who has not received the forgiveness of his sins. So, there is no repentance. Notice that the rich man doesn't cry out to God asking God to forgive him or I'm I'm sorry for what I did before and I want to worship you and love you, but it's all about himself again. He just wants the torment to go away. He just wants the pain pain to be delivered from him. And he even tries to use Lazarus as, as, as as a tool. He's still looking to that man as someone who is inferior to him. You know, that guy who was the bagger... The beggar, can you send him to go help me out to come here? So there's no humility, there's no repentance, but he's just thinking of himself the whole time. So hell is not a place where people learn their lesson, but they will be there and they'll still be against God even then. I love this phrase from Bert Parsons. He says, heaven will be full of thankful people asking, why me, Lord? Hell will be full of people demanding fairness. And I think that's a very appropriate phrase even to our days with everything going on with social justice and critical race theory where everything is about fairness and the Bible definitely makes a great distinction between justice, righteousness and fairness alright so any questions about this first part the second question then Abraham sorry Abraham has answered the first Request. Okay, this is the first answer then to what Abraham asked. He says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime receive your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. I don't know if you noticed, but someone could, what if someone, you read in the Bible with someone who just became a Christian and they're trying to understand the parable and they ask, Okay, but this is kind of weird because I became a Christian understanding that God is righteous and the reason Christ died on the cross. It's because God, because He is holy and because He is righteous, He has to punish sin in Christ so that we could be forgiven. And our sins are paid in Christ, that's why we go to heaven. All of us would agree with that. So, why is then this man in hell, and he's being called the child of Abraham, and then he's saying that this man received good things? Aren't these things that belong to the Christians, right? If you are a son of Abraham, if you are... Um, inheritance of Abraham, of his seed, then you are the elect, or you, you're the people of God. So how come can God send someone in this place there? What is the text saying? And I, I don't know if that's something that ever came to our mind, but 
the explanation for this, of course, is that Jesus is using here the same language he uses in Matthew chapter 5. During the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, I think I quote that pretty soon, but he says, don't... Um, when he says, in one sense, all of us are sons of God. And we see that in Scripture sometimes, especially in the Old Testament, where all of us are creatures of God, in that sense, we're sons of Adam. We're we're offspring of God in that sense. We're his creation. And in that sense, he is truly a child of Abraham. And he does receive good things, and that's when Matthew 5 comes in. Matthew 5 says that God sends the just, sends the rain (laughs) over the just and over the unjust. All of us receive good things. And that's why this man has no excuse to, be, to, to, to say he didn't know about being hell and, and what was coming. Because God, in all that he does to us, Christians and non-Christians, everything that God sends to us, says in James, is a good and perfect gift. God, does never, God never sends us anything that will lead us to sin. But everything that he does is that we would repent, but then us, in our sinful nature, we take his gifts, we take the good things that he gives us, and we use them selfishly. And that's what we see with the rich man. He received all these blessings, and all of those things were witness to him of how he should praise God. And why am I receiving so many good things when I'm an evil person? And that should lead him to, to understand scripture and to seek for repentance and to seek for a savior. And yet, that's not what we see happening to the rich man. So, in that sense, he's a child of Abraham. He received good things, and yet he did not repent. That's why he is there. Besides, between us and you, a great chasm, and this is ESV, great chasm, I think it has a, a gulf here in our translation, has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. The, the time to repent is the time where we are in this life. And I think that that's maybe one of the strongest things about, one of the, the hardest things to understand about hell is the idea of that once you're there, there's no turning back. And that's why we need to be active now in, in, in our evangelism, being serious about proclaiming the gospel, because this is the chance we have in, in to, to repent. And this is the time God has given us in His grace. He could have just sent us to hell, all, all the ones who deserve sin, hell. But he gives us time to repent, and that's why we're here in this life, so that we could help others to do it. And I taught this in Bonner's Fair the first time. That's why I quote here Tito. <laughs> I know it's probably kind of weird to do it here. But Tito, I don't know if it's for, if he's just quoting for someone else, but I remember he always say that to the unbeliever, this life is the closest to heaven he'll ever experience. And to the believer, this life is the closest to hell you'll ever experience. From Tito Lero, pastor in the Olympia Bible Presbyterian Church. <laughs> Good guy. And, and that's very appropriate for what we see here in this parable. What about the second request? The second request is the one when he asks, okay, can you send then someone to go help my five brothers. I have five brothers, and if I have to suffer here, at least send someone to help them. I just said that this man is absolutely selfish and that hell does not redeem anyone, does not lead him to be any more godly just because they're there. It's just punishment. So is he now showing some mercy and some love for other people? And I would argue that he's not. I, I think what we're seeing here is pretty much the idea that 
I think the American saying goes, thick, uh, blood is thicker than water. And I think that's what we're seeing here, that he, he cares about his family, and in that sense, he just at least do something about my family, the ones who I care about. And that's the text in Matthew 5 when it says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Is there any good in it? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do, you, do, you, do, do not even the Gentiles do the same? So love here, even in Scripture, can be used in, in a more superficial love, just about what you want and, and what you care about. And not necessarily a love that comes from God. And, I, and I'm emphasizing all of this because I think it's very important to understand that God is righteous and He would not send punish in hell anything that anyone who has done good. That's important to understand. So Abraham's, what about Abraham's answer to this second request? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. The means by which God has established that salvation would take place in people's lives is through the word of God. And this is more practical than we think. I think that most of us would agree with that statement. Yeah, that's true. We believe that the word of God is from where all the power comes from. But I'm sure all of you, you know someone, a family member, a, a co-worker, a friend, someone who you, you care about, you, you love that person, and yet that person is not saved. What are we trying to do so that that person can help? Are we just expecting that at some point some miracle will happen? Uh, a lot of the times, I believe, especially in the Reformed faith, we misunderstand the sovereignty of God and stop doing what we are, we're called to do. And we think, you know, if God does something, if, if the Spirit will come and regenerate His heart, right? It's the Spirit of God, who, the only one who can do it. And we're expecting these miracles to take place when the Bible is very clear. Do you want someone to believe? Preach the Word to them. Bring the Word to them. And, and, and of course, that, that works. That, that happens as you feel yourself with the Word of God. And now when you talk to that person, the Word flows from you and you're witnessing to them showing how you interpret life, how you see things, and this is what the God says about this and that and what you're going through. And as we just witness to them that way, the Word of God then is used by the Spirit to work in people's heart. The work of the Spirit is never separated from the proclamation of God's Word. And we see that just a couple of verses. Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Gospel, the message of the Gospel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's exactly what Abraham is saying. They have the best testimony one could have. All, of the, all of the, the law and the prophets, they don't need any more than that. Uh, this is just a quote from Spurgeon talking about the work of the Spirit through the word of God. If you do not understand a book by a departed writer, you are unable to ask him his meaning. But the Spirit who inspired the Holy Scripture lives forever, and He delights to open the Word to those who see His instruction. And I I think that that's the encouragement we have. The Spirit is with us. Christ is in heaven, but He has not left us alone. He gave us the Spirit so that we could truly understand Scripture and now preach and help others who are around us. Now, something very interesting. One of the things I love about the parables is how Jesus always ends the parable with something very, like he usually ends the parables with a question or with a kind of a controversial statement. It's kind of an open-ended statement. He does that a lot. We don't have time today to go through all the different parables, but 
most of them finish with something like this. And what he says here, uh, he, they have the law, Moses and the prophets, they will neither repent, be persuaded, even if someone will rise from the dead. Is that true? Did that actually take place? Think about it. There was another man named Lazarus, and who knows if Jesus had this in mind or not here. I believe he, he well, definitely knew that there was a, something there, and he rose Lazarus from the dead. And even with those signs, did the Jews repent? No, they did not. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Even if one would rise from the dead, literally, and it took place, will they believe? No, they would not. Again, not only Lazarus, but who rose from the dead? Jesus. Jesus. Christ rose from the dead. And did they believe? No, they're still trying to find all these conspiracy ideas and try to say that someone stole the body. And did they repent? No, they didn't. So we know that it's not for lack of evidence. And even today, people today who don't believe in Christ or in the Bible, they'll say, oh, no, I believe in science. I believe in this and that. And all these other things, but the Bible is just fiction, you know, like people healing and doing crazy things. I don't believe that. Today is not the time for it, but if there's one thing we know for sure in the whole history of the world, from whenever we started to today, 2021, is that Christ rose from the dead. When you, when you talk about historical evidence, if there's one thing we know, you may doubt that Plato existed. You may doubt that a certain king in the Middle Ages really did what he did because you only have one or two accounts from people who were really close to him that maybe had to say something nicer than actually it was. But when it comes to Jesus rising from the dead, the amount of witness and the amount of, of things we have written and testifying that that took place from different people with different interests is just impossible. If there's one thing we know even today is that Christ did rise from the dead. He did. And in that sense, we have, the, we have the evidence. And do people believe? No, they still find an excuse to deny that Christ is Lord and that Christ is King and that He is our Savior. And they do not repent from their sins. So that's what Jesus is saying. How do you, how, how do you minister to people? It's through preaching of the Word of God. So... Any questions or comments? I'll start now and move to our application, unless you guys have any questions on the passage. Doug? I was just thinking back on the child, uh, referring to him as the child coming hard on the heels of the, uh, of the prodigal son, or the, the, the parable of the two sons, the two children, hmm. in the home, that uh, you know, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and uh, he's acting like a child. You know, a child wants everything for himself, he's only about his gratification, Interesting. Yeah, I didn't think of that. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So Doug is saying, if you couldn't hear back there, is that even the expression "child" used here sometimes "child" can mean something more loving intimacy. But I think that you're right. Here is "child" maybe in a more immature way. Like your child, you know, you who do not, you do not understand. Can't you see? I think that that's a good way to look at that as well. Yeah. Uh, so, moving to the application. The application is, if it wasn't clear until today in your life, you're going to die. And why are you trusting? Now is the, the tricky thing you have to do in your brain. When we read the Bible, and I'm saying this because that's what I do all the time. You're reading the Bible and you're thinking of how bad the character is. 
and how bad those people are, or even your friend who you know, you know, like this would apply for those and those. But I believe all of us can take something from the parable. Remember that what Jesus is doing here is he's going, going back to verse 14. He's looking at a presupposition, a worldview that those people had that the rich man is the one who's going to have it. He's being saved, right? Because he's rich. The poor man is the one who does not have the favor of God, so he's going to hell. These things that you establish are as good and bad on your own, being rich or poor, that's not really why God judges people and send them to heaven and hell. And I don't think any of us here would do that with money. To us, it's really obvious. Like, okay, you look to someone who is rich and think they're going to have him just because of that. No, I don't think any of us would do that. But don't we do that sometimes without noticing with maybe understanding of the Bible? You know, I believe in, I, I know that the Bible teaches infant baptism. So I'm better than this other person who don't. Or I, you know, I, even morality. If it comes to down to I'm a better person, I do certain things that this other person is just sinning all the time in this area. And, and if, if that's the standard you're using, then we're doing the same thing that these people are doing to the rich men. And I think that that's very important. We can look in our hearts and see, okay, what is, what is this that can even be an idol in our hearts that now we see life through this idol? If, if knowledge is important to me and I'm pursuing this knowledge and now I can compare myself and I'm better than others because I have this knowledge and these people don't, is that what takes you to heaven? Or even morality, all these other things? And who knows? We, we, we fall in all different kinds of traps. So only faith in Christ, only the blood of Christ will do. Like the hymn we sing, walk and wash away my sin. Nothing, absolutely nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we need to trust that. So salvation is through Jesus Christ. And if someone is a saint, I think especially when it comes to dealing with different people in different denominations, we can look at, you know, oh, you're Baptist. Oh, you're even charismatic. Whatever that person is. Are we judging people according to their, the church they go to or their doctrine necessarily or is it about loving Christ? And, and I'm not saying that these things are not important. Of course, if I could choose between eating a good meal on the table or being poor on the ground with dogs licking me, I'm not crazy. I'm going to choose the riches. Like money is it's not a bad thing in itself. In the same way that I do pursue good doctrine, I want to understand the word of God because the more I know it doesn't save me, but the more I understand, the more I can live a life of joy in Christ and I can live this life more satisfied and understanding who God is and who I am and my role, my purpose in life and all those things are great blessings. So I want money. I want knowledge. I want morality because like the book of Proverbs, as you do good things, it, it's natural that life would work better that way because it's the way it's designed. But we don't let those things become an idol for us and, our, and a savior. So that's the first application looking to ourselves. Now, the second one, and that's the last one, we'll close with this, is love thy neighbor as thyself. I'm telling you right now, there are rich men in your life. And when I say rich men, not necessarily rich men, but rich men in the sense we just described. People who believe that they're going to heaven because of this and that. Uh, I forget who says it, but I, I truly believe that most people in hell will be religious people. Most people in hell will be surprised when they get to hell. How many people do you know who are just terrible people and they're like, yeah, when I die, I'm going to hell because I'm a terrible person. 
I mean, some people may be that way, but most people are, you know, I'm a good person. God will, God, you know, look at those other people stealing and raping and doing all these other things. I'm going to heaven. I'm, I'm getting the line. And I believe most people in hell will be surprised. Most people there will think that they are rich. That whatever standard of morality or standard of God's judgment they have to themselves, they are achieving that. They are, they're attaining to that level. And that's just not true. God says the narrow is the way that leads to life, and broad is the way that leads to perdition. And in that sense, we ought to preach the gospel. So if the first application is looking to ourselves and what, what are we really trusting, the second application is looking to others. What are these people really trusting? Can we help them to see Christ and to see Christ as their only Savior? Because He is the only way, the truth, and the life. So let us proclaim the Word of God. And again, as we saw, not expecting a miracle, not we pray, we do all these things, but just study the Word and then live the Word and preach the Word, teach the Word. Um, and I'll just close with this phrase from Aquinas. If the highest aim of a captain were to preserve his, preserve his ship, he would keep it in port forever. I think it's kind of an interesting... Like, what is the purpose of your life? I think many times we make the purpose of our life to just care about ourselves. It's just to polish the ship. It's just to do everything that we can do to have the most comfort and to be happy and satisfied. And what the Bible tells us is actually the opposite. You give yourself. You sacrifice yourself following the example of Christ who did not live for his own, but he gave his life. He poured himself for others so that they, they could receive eternal life. And of course, we know that though it starts with a, with a sacrifice, that sacrifice becomes, turns out to be the greatest blessing one can have, leading to treasures not in this life, but in eternal life. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this parable of the rich man and Lazarus and how it encourages us to meditate and to ponder upon the truths of eternity, the truths of how our soul is not something that will cease to exist, but all of us will face judgment and face eternity before you, Lord. And we pray that we would find ourselves to Christ, trusting His blood and His sacrifice when we get there. Lord, we pray that uh, all of these thoughts of, of eternity would help us not only to love ourselves, uh, to, to understand who we are, but also to love our neighbor ourselves, to love You first and foremost, and to do the job You have called us to do. We pray that You'd be with us, uh, not only uh, now as we uh, continue meditating on these truths, but I pray also for Scott as he preached to us in the main service and then afternoon. Uh, help us to have a blessed Sunday. We pray that we receive our worship and all things that we do today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.